If you listen to that open and some of the highlights in there, some of the old school highlights, it takes you back to yesteryear, specifically Rangers Devils, 1994 Eastern Conference Final. Rangers knock off the Devils with that famous, if you're a Ranger fan, it's famous if you're a Devil fan, infamous Stefan Matteau goal to send the Rangers to the cup where they would then go on to hoist the 1994 Stanley Cup trophy. If the Rangers are going to win title number five this year, oddly enough, they'll have to get past the same New Jersey Devils in round one of this season's NHL playoffs. It's a great time to be a sports fan, as it usually is. In golf, we're coming out of the Masters. Plenty to talk about there on the PGA Tour. MLB's locked and loaded. Tampa Bay Rays storm out of the gates. And then, of course, in addition to the NHL postseason beginning, you've got the NBA playoffs. That slate is settled. The play-in games are over. So we've got every single matchup to go through, and we will break it all down here today on Sports Today with Peter J. the April 15th edition of the broadcast. Just a quick note moving forward. Showtime's going to be a little bit different moving forward. We're going to go live on Friday evenings at 5 p.m. on the East Coast, right here on Podbean Live. Everything posts to Samsung, Spotify, that whole deal afterwards as well. iHeart, uh, iTunes, and all that and, and all that jazz. We're moving the showtime from Saturdays at 11 on the East Coast to Fridays at 5 p.m. Why? Well, I coach my school's baseball team, and we have a lot of games on Saturday mornings, so I want to make sure that uh, I am prioritizing everything uh, for those young men as we work toward repeating as champions from a year ago. Going to be great first game Tuesday, and then we play next Saturday um, at 9 a.m. So just a quick um, programming note as we move forward. But where I want to start today is with Major League Baseball. An absolutely historic start to this season for Tampa Bay. Finally went down last night with a loss uh, to the Blue Jays. But opening the season 13 for its first 13. To tie an MLB modern era record was unbelievable. A 13-0 start. 
in that division, the American League East, they're just going to hammer people. I think Boston's better than they get credit for. Tampa Bay's legit. We know that even before the start. The Yankees are teetering right now third. Tampa, uh, Toronto is loaded offensively, and they've got very good pitching. This is a division, and oh, by the way, the Orioles, who can pack a punch in their lineup, and they've got some speed as well. This is a division that's the class of Major League Baseball, and all Tampa Bay did was win its first 13 games. 1982 Braves, 87 Brewers are the only teams previously to do that. Now, that's in the modern era. You've got to go way, 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 way back. And I'm talking way back to the year 1884. The only better start in professional baseball belonged to the St. Louis Maroons, who went a perfect 20 for 20 to begin the 1884 season. So you've got to tip your cap to this Tampa Bay team, now 13-1. and one. But what they've been able to do, it's the perfect combination for a team who is a bit quirky. You've been following baseball the last couple of years. You know Tampa Bay, they, they rock to a different tune, right? They're jiving to a different beat. Kevin Cash has his intricacies. They use the openers for pitching. The traditional closer, maybe you got a starter go six innings, somebody comes in for the seventh and the eighth, or somebody comes in for the seventh, another for the eighth, then you have your closer for the ninth. Well, Tampa Bay sort of, I don't want to use the word invented, but kind of make it made it panache and, and popular to use this opener role, where you might bring a guy out for an inning, an inning, and a third, and then turn it over to someone else and play matchup baseball, and it's working. It seemed insane to many. But Tampa Bay's made it work. Limited payroll, in need of the new stadium the last couple of years, all of that in the news and the media, and all they've continued to do is win baseball games. Randy Arozarena out in left field is an absolute star. Yandy Diaz is hitting. Four homers driven in nine already. They got a bunch of guys hitting over 280 in the starting lineup. Franco. Arozarena's hitting 315, and the guy can run too. And he plays a hell of a left field. Paredes, Loud, Diaz. Christian Betancourt behind the plate gives them stability. This is a really good Tampa Bay baseball team that, again, and I can't stress this enough, and those of you who watch Major League Baseball know what I'm talking about. The American League is, is ridiculously loaded. Tampa Bay might be the best team in that division. And that includes, and I'm again, the 13-0 start, you wave the sexiness flag. It looks great on paper. It looks great when you're watching it in highlights on TV. Or if you catch them out on the West Coast. Or if you catch them at home down in the, in the trop and you're watching the game at 7 o'clock at night. It looks great. But you could have made the argument that this was the best team in the division prior to the start of the season. I would have said Toronto, Tampa, Yankees. Close there. Matter of fact, if you go back to the show I did a couple of weeks ago, prior to the start of the MLB regular season where we I went through my MLB over-under picks, I have every all of the five teams in the AL East hitting their overs. That's how highly I think of this division. And that includes the Yankees, who we'll talk about in a little bit. But this Tampa Bay team, for what they do and the style of baseball they play, there is, there, there's no reason why. Now, 
you can go back a, a year ago to the start, the first half that the Yankees had, and then they played just under 500 baseball the rest of the way, got to the American League Championship Series, the bats were depleted, boom, swept by the Houston Astros, who went on to win the World Series. This strikes me as a little bit different, though. There's, there's good balance with this Tampa Bay team. Rasmussen, McClanahan, Springs, Eflin. Good arms in that starting rotation. Out of the bullpen, you can rely on guys like Pete Fairbanks. Just from top to bottom, when you look at what these this team offers, out of the gates, and yes, it's early, but winning 13 or 14 is impressive. Rasmussen, McClanahan, and Springs. 2.60, ERAs to start the season. Eflin, 3-2-7. They are a combined 9-1. and one. That's good starting pitching. You know, McClanahan, at, at times, he's got issues with the walks. But between himself, Springs, and Rasmussen, these are strikeout guys. And when you've got that working for you with an offense that can light you up, that can run a little bit, that doesn't strike out in bunches, and they take bases, this is a recipe for championship baseball. Now, you'll look down top to bottom at this American League East as the season goes on. And, folks, we're 14, 15 games into the season. Is <laughs> 162-game season-plus playoffs is a lot of baseball. I've been a Yankee fan my whole life, but I'll tell you as much, in this American League East, in addition to this Tampa team, you've got to really like what the Blue Jays offer. Offensively, there's not a hole in that lineup. And what they've done to rebuild and rework their pitching over the last couple of seasons, this is the year. For Toronto, really, to take control. Boston trying to build up with some good young pitching. The Yankees did a nice job in the offseason. Yankees have just been bit by the injury bug. But they're coming up with some good young talent of their own. Tampa Bay, Toronto right now, with the Yankees right on their heels, I think are the class of the American League East, at least early on. And they are 1-2 and two in the division. Tampa Bay is first. Nine and five, Toronto sits second. The Yankees are eight and six. On that point with the Yankees, their record, they come home eight and four in their first 12. They win all three of their opening series, come home and drop the first two to Minnesota. I mean, they got pounded on Thursday night, 11 to two. Down seven, eight, nothing in the, in, in the, before you got to your seats, before you got your popcorn and your Budweiser out, they were down in eight, nothing. It happens. Who was on the hill was one of the youngsters I'm alluding to, Johnny Brito. He looked great in his first two career starts. Things like that happen. Kid goes two and a third at home, gives up seven earned runs in the 11-2 loss. But when you take a look at what Brito offers the Yankees, good movement on his fastball, good repertoire, works nicely with the catchers. Be it a Higashioka or Trevino. And the reason he is such an integral piece in what the Yankees are trying to do is because, yes, he is one of their high-priced or highly-ranked prospects. I get that. 
thrown into the fire due to injuries. You got Frankie Matas out until probably June. Carlos Rodon, the big offseason acquisition. He tossed the bullpen session Wednesday, but he's not ex- expected back until May. Luis Severino threw a bullpen session last week. And from what I was reading earlier in the week, it looks like the 29-year-old could be back this month, which is huge, or at least in early May. So that's boom, 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 three starting pitchers that are banged up on the shelf. Brito comes in his first two career starts. Kid was fantastic. Then he gets lit up by a Minnesota offense that is really good. They've got pop in that lineup, guys that can get on base. Carlos Correa hitting second, which is awesome. So this is a good Minnesota team. Frustrating loss for the Yankees last night, 4-3 at home. I get it, where they start the game with back-to-back home runs. Anthony Volpe and Aaron Judge. It was the first career home run for Volpe, the local kid from Jersey, um, who's given a lot, who's looked pretty good early on. And they said on the broadcast last night, for those who are watching it on, on Yes Network, Anthony Volpe, even if you go back to the minors, Slow start to his seasons, and then he used the hits and the home runs and the RBIs and the stolen bases just come in droves. So maybe we're starting to see that now with Volpe, who, in my opinion, has I, I think the kid's been impressive. He's held his own at shortstop. He's looked good. Got good rapport with everybody in that infield, no matter who it is. So you're happy there. And I think overall, even after that struggling start Thursday for Brito, I think you'd be impressed with what this young man offers as well. Because here's the bottom line for the Yankees as it relates to pitching. More on the offense in a second. Even when Radon, Monta, Severino are ready to roll again, and, and Severino is going to be the first to come back, barring complete disaster, then Rodon, then Montas. He, Montas, again, is out until June. I, I would caution to be on the, on, the, on the back end of that month. Yanks are going to need him, but they're also going to need Brito here to keep this kid's confidence because he's got good stuff. And even when the rotation is back to full strength or as close to full strength as humanly possible in a 162 game season, this kid's going to factor in and he's two for his first three. It's impressive. Aaron Boone said it in post game. Unfortunately, you're going to get cracked in the mouth sometimes. It just comes with the territory. It's part of the game. Somebody punch you in the mouth, figure out a way to punch them right back. It's good life lesson, good lesson in sports. Go down swinging. And this kid, Brito, offers that. I like it. And it might have been good medicine early in the season, at home. And that's a pretty damn good lineup that did it to him. Now, Eight and six coming back home for a 10-game homestand. You dropped the first two. Frustrating. I get it. What I will say, and there's, there's no real great his here with this. Gary Cole and Nestor Cortez have been fantastic. That's been expected. Bullpen's done a nice job as well. I like the Yankee lineup. Because I like the the way that Glaber Torres has played to start the season. I like what Anthony Rizzo gives you. You've got some questions at third base. You've got Josh Donaldson. He should be returning from the hamstring injury next week. The year after really 
And I've been as hard on Josh Donaldson and anybody as anyone, and deservedly so. He was he was brutal last season. It got so bad offensively for the guys that start to impact his defense. And a lot of times, you could be a sports fan, right? Fanatic. I say it all the time. That's what fan fanatic. You, you could be irrational. Sometimes I struggle with hammering athletes who do something I can't do. Right? They're pro athletes. Who am I to nail them? Josh Donaldson was freaking terrible last year. You don't have to be Nostradamus to figure that out. But getting him back from this hamstring injury is big. You can put Oswald Cabrera at third. I get it. IKF at 31 to go glove there a couple years ago in Texas. I get it. If you can solidify that spot, and it's Donaldson's job first. But the beauty here with Cabrera is that he offers you that utility aspect. He can play the corner outfield positions. He can play anywhere in the infield. That's huge. And he hits. Get a little pop too. So even dropping these first two games to Minnesota at home. Yeah, it sucks. It's frustrating if you're a Yankee fan. It is. I get it. But 8-6 and six to start the gates. You see the bullpen, how it's coming into its own. You're going to get some guys back there as well. Tommy Canely for the most part. And I, I would, I'm still reading a lot about uh, Zach Britton. Uh, what's going on as he's on the market. Perhaps the Mets might be interested in acquiring him. Heard his name floated with the Red Sox. I doubt a, a potential return with the Yankees because he hasn't pitched much over the last two years due to injury. But I think this Yankee bullpen will continue to come together. Ron Marinaccio's got really, really great stuff. And I like uh, Holmes at the back end shutting the door. The rotation, Cole, Cortez, I've liked Brito. Outside of Thursday, and things like Garrett Cole's been lit up in his career. Sandy Koufax got lit up in his career. The great Nolan Ryan, the greats. It happens. I really, really like this kid. Another one I'm high on is Clark Schmidt. Now, Clark Schmidt's an interesting case to me because I really want to find out. I got to dig a little deeper to this as I continue to build my uh, guest list for the program. Uh, Months ago, we had uh, Brian Hoke on the program. Uh, the Yankees beat writer from MLB.com, uh, talking, sort of setting the stage for what the playoffs would look like for the Yankees. I'd like to get some insight there as to how the Yankees really view long-term Clark Schmidt. Right now, he's in a starter role, and it's it hasn't been great. The one thing I will say about Clark Schmidt, when his fastball's on, it's different. Kid's tough to hit when that fastball is locked in. And he was an asset last season for the Yankees, specifically in the playoffs, out of the bullpen. So it begs the question, starter long-term, bullpen long-term. You're asking me personally, I like him in the rotation. Just stick with him. Right? This, you're a starter, now you're, an, now, now you're when they go to the six-man rotations, to kind of stretch guys out, give guys an extra break. Now you're in the bullpen. Now you're coming in the seventh inning. Now you're cleaning up if somebody bombs out like Brito the other night. You're coming in for cleanup duty. Not knowing your role can be problematic as well. So I hope the Yankees are able to stick with Schmidt in the rotation. Domingo Herman hasn't been great either. So it's all the more important to get the guys, Severino and Rodon specifically, healthy and back. It's good that Rodon is throwing the bullpen session. Now, he's not expected back until May, but the good news is it's April 15th. Luis Severino, 
if you're asking me to put a guess on it, he'll be back in April. Offensively, in addition to Donaldson, Harrison Bader could also be back at the end of the month. He's got a minor league rehab assignment coming up that's going to begin next week. I believe it's midweek. That goes smoothly. He's back before May, which is huge. So this is head above water for baseball for the Yankees here the first couple of weeks of the season as we talk at 1120 on this Saturday, April 15th, live on Sports Today with Peter J. Eight and six overall, third in the American League East with guys coming back. That's big. Frenchy Cordero's been a nice story. Uh, You've heard about him throughout his career, uh, highly thought of prospect earlier in his career, and then sort of fizzled out. Aaron Boone has said how much he likes his natural raw talent. He's got a smooth swing that packs a lot of pop. And we've seen that to the tune of four home runs thus far in, in I think, 31 at-bats, which is pretty impressive. So there have been good stories here. Good start for Glaber Torres. But getting these guys back is going to be a big boon to the Yankees as they look to keep pace with Tampa Bay and Toronto. You can't discredit the Orioles. And I'm not eliminating the Red Sox. Again, this is an American League East that is loaded from top to bottom. All five teams can be threats in their own right. Hence, again, why I picked them to all hit their overs uh, prior to the beginning of the season. So that's kind of the status of the Yankees uh, with the injuries coming up and how they've played the first 14 games into the season. The Mets hold the same record at 8-6. and 17-6 victory uh, Friday night in Oakland. Man. Oakland is a terrible baseball team. There, I mean, there is just nothing there. Ramon Laureano. Outside of that, Shea Langley is the, the good young catcher. They're building for the future because this is a bad baseball team. 17 runs for the Mets last night. Seven driven in by Francisco Lindor, including a grand slam. That's what you want to see there from this Mets team. It's a little bit opposite offensively with the Mets have than the Yankees because, yes, you got a guy like Lindor has got some pop. Obviously, Pete Alonso can mash him with the best of them in the game. Marte can put him over the fence. But this isn't a Mets team that can slug him like the Yankees and the Blue Jays of the world, the Padres, the Dodgers. Mets are going to have to win with pitching and manufacturing runs, which I think they can do. Big news for the Mets here on the Justin Verlander front. He's going to be rehabbing in the minors before making his official Mets debut. Sounds like common freaking sense, right? If everything stays on track from where he is in his rehab now, just getting himself ready to pitch in the minors, his Mets debut could happen later this month, which would get him on the mound before May which would be great news for the Mets. Cody Senga has been been a nice find for the Mets. Pitched relatively well last night in Oakland. Uh, three for his first three there uh, as a member of the New York Mets. But there are alarming numbers across the board. Number one, I know all the Mets fans want to see Beatty up here. Alvarez long-term behind the plate. I get it. And it's probably going to happen sooner than later. Because if you look at the offensive statistics of the Mets early on, and this is before last night's 17-run barrage. Bottom of the league in RBIs. A team average of 50. Team total of 50 
in 13 games going into last night's thumping of Oakland. A 218, which I think is now 222 team batting average. 90 hits going into last night. So this was an offense in major statistics. Not all the, the sabermetric stuff, the, the basic statistics that are of importance, driving in runs, batting average, and hits. The Mets are at the bottom. And this was a fear last season in Queens. Mark Hanna, nice player. Marte, nice player. Lindor gets hammered by the Met fan base. I, I love the guy. Pete Alonso, star. Issues behind the plate. Figuring out long-term at third. The Nimos of the world. And then you're starting pitching. But I, I think where the Mets' focus needs to be is on the offensive side of the baseball. Because until they put up 17 last night out in California, it hadn't looked good. Eight and six, again. You're right there a couple of weeks into the season, 14 games in. There's no panic mode here. The Verlander news is good. Seeing Scherzer rebound from a rough opener, huge. I, I, but one of the things that scared me in that rotation is Carlos Carrasco has been absolutely putrid. Peterson, nice player. Another one who, the Met fan base to me seems to be in limbo there with Peterson. And obviously everything that happened uh, with the WBC injury to Edwin Diaz made the bullpen a little shaky, but you've got David Roberts, David Robertson at the back end. You could do worse there. State of New York baseball a couple weeks in. I think we're okay here, folks. Matching eight and six records, arriving at those records a little differently. For the Yankees coming off the eight and four trip before the 10 game uh, homestand and dropping the first two to Minnesota, it's upsetting. Especially when you think 11 2, 4 3. So you're getting outscored 15 5 in two games uh, on your home field. Not ideal. But as, and, I, and again, I can't stress enough how highly I think of Tampa Bay and Toronto. Yanks can be right there. An 8-6 and six start to the season with guys coming back. Donaldson next week, Bader, Severino before the end of the month. Huge. Verlander potentially back for the Mets before the end of the month. Huge to make his Mets debut. You don't think that's going to get the fan base jacked up? Another Hall of Famer on the mound. To piggyback Max Scherzer, that's great. And you still, by the way, got a really good closer in Robertson. So there's a luxury a lot of teams didn't have. I think the Mets are going to be fine. In a really good division, I get it. Atlanta's good. Philly is uh, the defending NL champs. I think Miami's better than they get, get credit for. They got some good young talent, good pitching. So it, it will be interesting. And Washington's a terrible baseball team. That Much like Oakland considerable rebuild mold. So I think that's where you are. You're frustrating with the Yankees dropping the first two at a homestand. Yes, Mets creating frustration offensively. I get it. Want to see the young kids coming up, specifically Beatty. I get it. In due time, it's going to happen. 
because the Mets are going to need that spark. That's where it's going to come from. You look around the league, Minnesota's off to a nice start, specifically taking the last two from the Yankees and the Bronx. Six and two on the road to start the season. It's pretty damn good for the Twins. Cleveland right behind them at eight and six. Minnesota, 10 and four. Uh, you know all about Tampa, Toronto, nine and five. The Braves are out to a 10 and four start. I mean, as enjoyable as this Tampa Bay Rays start to the season has been, the Atlanta Braves play a really fun brand of baseball to watch. Good young talent that's come up through their own pipeline, and you watch these guys become veterans to mix in with what they have going already. Brian Snicker's done a great job with that team. Uh, Mets right behind them. Miami's at seven and seven. You know, Phillies. Five and nine teetering, you know they're going to bounce back. They just have too much talent, especially when they get Harper right. Milwaukee's off to a good start at 10 and four. Arizona's kind of been a surprise at eight and six. I think they might be a, a, a faster bloomer than many give credit for that Arizona team if you look at some of the young call ups that they've had. But then you've got the Dodgers, the Padres right on their heels. LA and San Diego are loaded. Yeah, the Cubs off to a decent start. But I, I think right now that there's there haven't been too many surprises early on. At least in my nothing that's good. Wow. I mean, a 13-0 start for Tampa Bay is a wow moment. But I it's not like it was the Kansas City Royals who did you understand what I'm saying there? This is a legit title contending Tampa Bay team that starts the season 13-0, 13-1 now, 10-0 at home. In a division that includes the 9-5 Blue Jays, 8-6 Yankees, 8-6 Orioles, and then a just below 500-6-8 Red Sox team. So we're off to a good start with Major League Baseball. Really good start, I think, across the league. For New York, just keep the positivity. You're, you're, I mean, Met fans love to be miserable. That's why most Met fans are Jet fans. Because it gives you a full, long year of just being miserable. But I think... 14 games into the season, with guys coming back, specifically for the Yankees and the Mets, you're okay here. I think everything is fine. Just like it was last year when the Mets were choppy late in the season. Everybody worried about blowing the division. They didn't win the division. They got in the playoffs. Didn't go according to plan. I get it. Mets offense will figure it out. And I think once they figure out what that lineup is going to look like from a balanced perspective, and how that can be infused with the young kids. Add in the idea of having Scherzer and Verlander and now Senga leading the way in this rotation. It, it, it's not an opinion to say that the Mets are a really good baseball team. It's a fact. It's just going to take a little bit of time. And I think they have it. Again, I'll use the phrase with the Yankees and the Mets. Head above water the first couple of weeks of the season. And that's where we are. One of the best things that has developed as we transition now over the past couple of weeks across the New York metropolitan area, and even the country, because if you're a sports fan, you're a sports fan. You've got your rooting interest, but it doesn't mean you're not watching any other games or paying, any, paying attention to what's happened in any other geographic spot in the country. Really cool development that took place in the New York metro area the last couple of weeks. For the first time in 29 years, 29 years, the Knicks, the Nets, the Rangers, Islanders, 
and New Jersey Devils have all reached the playoffs at the same time. It has been 29 years in a sports-crazed area since that last happened. Many of you might remember during that 1994 year what else was going on during that time. 911, what are you reporting? This is this is AC. I have OJ in the car. Okay, where are you? Please, I'm coming up the five freeway. Okay. Right now we all we are okay, but you gotta tell the police to just back off. He's still alive, but he got a gun to his head. Is everything else okay? Everything right now is okay, officer. Everything is okay. All about he wants to me to get him to his mom. He wants me to get him to his house. Okay. So that's all I. That's all we have. He got a gun to his head. Okay. Now what? What's your name? My name. Yeah, it's funny when I started prepping for this segment, did a lot of reading about what was going on in 1994. I kind of smacked myself when I read, that's right. You're watching the NBA playoffs for the Knicks game and the breaking news comes on in the OJ Simpson white Bronco chase without Cowlings driving. And all the 911 calls coming in from the public. AC himself, you heard it there in the old clip. I believe that was a CNN or a or a Fox clip that I had just played the audio that came through um, from back in 1994 when this was going on. <laughs> Add into NBA Finals. So you're taking that on your television screen. And what gets small boxed up to the top corner is not the chase. But the sporting event, everything took a back seat to that 1994 chase involving O.J. Simpson, who, like I'm a lump him, is one of the greatest athletes we've ever seen. So, yeah, that was hot-button news during a time in, in New York where it was sports fever. I mean, I always made the case, and and I obviously did not think this way when I was a youth, because when you're a kid, you root for the team that you root for to hell with everybody else. But now at a point, think about that. Think about what having five teams in the same city or state or neighboring state at the same time means economically. Like the good that does. That's pretty cool stuff. And we've got it again. You know, across New York City and, and, and New Jersey, bars, restaurants, clubs that are going to be airing these games. You know, not too far removed from a pandemic where finances aren't great, where economics aren't great. A lot of money to be made here going out in public to watch the Jets, uh, the Yankees, the Mets playing right now. And then the Rangers, Islanders, Devils, Knicks, Nets, all at once. That's seven teams five of which are in the playoffs. First round of the NBA playoffs set to start today for those listening live, Saturday, April 15th. Conference semifinals will kick off May 1st. Opening round. I mean, you've got some big games now. that And these series, the way they break down, specifically in the, in the Western Conference, um, are really appetizing. You get the, the final playing game in the East last night. Miami takes down Chicago. They're going to play Milwaukee. Interesting series here. Miami can pack a punch.
but it's going to be a tough sell for me to go any direction in this series that doesn't involve picking Milwaukee in more than five games. I just don't see it. Giannis by himself is enough. And this is a good Miami team. This is not a quintessential eight seed. But the way Milwaukee's played, I, and they've had some good ones with Boston during the year. I know Boston blew them out a couple of weeks ago. But it's it's too hard of a sell for me to think anything less of this Bucks team to not beat Miami in five or less. And that's where I'll go. You've got number two Boston against the seven-seeded Atlanta Hawks. Boston was three of three against Atlanta during the regular season. But this is a different Atlanta team at this point. Those of you who watch basketball know exactly what I'm talking about. Over the last, let's say, in the East, the last four to six weeks, led by Trey Young and Deontay Murray's 26 and 20 points a game, this Atlanta team has been one of the better shooting squads in the Eastern Conference. Uh, let's, let's put a number to it the last six weeks. Here's the problem. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Malcolm Brogdon. Those three alone combined for over 70 points a game for Boston. And when you add into the fact that this is a Boston team that is a good three-point shooting uh, group to begin with, Boston, much like Milwaukee, have the complete ability to win a title. So where I like Milwaukee in five games over Miami, I guess if you twisted my arm, I could go six. But I like Boston over Atlanta in five. You're going to get game one of that series today, April 15th, for those listening live. 3.30 tip time on the East Coast. That's your ESPN game. All right, Philadelphia and Brooklyn. Brooklyn's been a great story because of the fact that they were able to play high-level basketball, competitive basketball, winning basketball after moving on from the two nutjobs. Durant and Irving, specifically Irving, because look what happened to Dallas. Wow. Wow. So now they get a, a, a 76er team who might have the player of the year in Joel Embiid. Philly was four for four against Brooklyn during the regular season. Two of the games were, were decided by a combined seven points. I think this will be a more entertaining series than many would give credit to. Specifically because I like what Michael Bridges has brought to this Nets team. 26-4-3. Collectively as a team, the Nets, similar to Boston, are a pretty good three-point shooting team. I think they can keep the series tight. I do. Do I think Brooklyn advances? No. But it's not a shot at them. Who matches up and who do they surround Embiid with? Every team in the league is going to ask that question. Brooklyn's first up on the chopping block here. There's probably not an answer on this on this Nets team for Embiid. Seldom would there be. That being said, I like Philadelphia moving past Brooklyn. I think it's going to be physical. I think the games are going to be entertaining. Both crowds are going to be ready to roll, especially in Philadelphia. I like the 76ers in six. Game one also today, April 15th. That's a 1 p.m. start 
on ESPN. So ESPN's got a nice schedule going uh, for the round one and the game ones. Uh, Sixers Nets at 1 o'clock ESPN. Celtics Hawks 3.30 as they piggyback that one on ESPN. Then you get the four versus five matchup. First game, 6 p.m. tonight. Again, I say tonight for those listening live. Saturday, April 15th, ESPN. If you live in the New York metro area, the game will also be on MSG. Number four, Cleveland. Number five, New York. This is an interesting series on so many levels. During the regular season, Knicks took three of four. Now come into this postseason where these teams know each other well. Played a good contest a couple of weeks ago in Cleveland. This is a Knicks team that was down their leading score. Down the stretch. From March 30th to now, Julius Randle, two and a half weeks, has not played with a sprained ankle. As of Thursday, he had not been cleared for contact. Fast forward a day. Last night, actually, the Knicks website now lists Randall as questionable for Saturday's game. Could be giving it here a go for Julius Randall, which would be huge. Randall himself is targeting being ready to roll. NBA.com reports that he is going to rejoin the lineup. Game one in Cleveland. That's huge. Because to me, this series is going to boil down to one specific matchup. And it's not on an individual basis. Collectively, this is going to come down to the level of the Cleveland defense who can shut down the best of them. And you know that Donovan Mitchell and those can light it up. I get it. But it's Cleveland's defense who has been among the best in the league all year against this Knicks offense. This is a Knicks team that has the ability to play fast. But they're probably going to have to slow it down on both ends because Cleveland prefers the half-court game, the slower-paced game. Which is why it's all the more important to get somebody like Julius Randle back. Scares a lot of us late in games if he's the ISO numero uno de facto guy i.e when Jalen Brunson was out I get it but to have that combination back with the way Josh Hart has played and if you can get more consistency from RJ Barrett and the support that you've gotten from Emmanuel Quickly who's a finalist for sixth man of the year and Obi Toppin who's played really well in the absence of Julius Randle even beyond what the stat sheets say. Then I think this is a series that the Knicks can win. It's going to be a physical, grueling series regardless who is on the floor for either team. This Cavaliers defense has the ability to shut you down. But then if you look on the other side of things, there aren't too many teams in the league, and, and, and you haven't said this in, in years. There aren't too many teams that have the offensive explosiveness of the New York Knicks. Now, can that run and hide and disappear? Yeah. Which makes it frustrating. 
You saw late in the season, Knicks losing the teams they shouldn't lose to, including Orlando Magic. Can't happen. But the, the way that this series could play out could be very similar to the regular season. Now, Cleveland's got the home court advantage. I know everybody and their mother are picking Cleveland to win this. I got the Knicks in seven. If I'm correct, if the Knicks win in four, five, six, or seven, just win the series. A, a series win for the Knicks would be the franchise's second postseason series win in the last 24 years. I mean, if you're a Knicks fan, if that doesn't depress you, then you're just, you're numb. I like this team. I like the energy. I like the belief. Jalen Brunson has just been an absolute star. Julius Randle, when he's right, a walking double-double. They're going to have to get much more support and stability from R.J. Barrett. Mitchell Robinson as well. But the way quickly and Toppin have played lately, and I know, believe me, what what the headlines and what the prognosticators and what all the network TV and radio shows are going to say if the Knicks lose this series to Donovan Mitchell, who they had the opportunity to go swoop and didn't get, it's not going to end. Ignore it. Now you're in the playoffs. It starts April 15th at 6 p.m. in Cleveland. Go win a series. The Knicks are more than capable of winning this series. And I think they will. I got them in seven. I would love it to be six. But I think they can do it. The talent is there. The time is now for this New York Knicks team. It's been long enough. You've got your pieces in place. Yeah, you didn't get Donovan Mitchell, but Jalen Brunson worked out to be just fine. And if you go back to last season's playoffs, he outplayed the guy. So I'm fine with what the Knicks are rolling out. The X factor, everybody's saying the X factor is Julius Randle. No, all accounts point to him being ready to go for game one anyway. The X factor for the Knicks is R.J. Barrett. He can't go out there and be a mirage. He cannot go out there and be invisible. He has not been good around the rim in spurts. Other games he'll explode for 25-30. That's great. But you need consistency in the playoffs. And if it's not going to be there, Tom Thibodeau's going to have to have a short leash. Because there are guys that would be ready to roll. Quentin Grimes, Emmanuel Quickly, Obi Toppin, Miles McBride. Guys who have played well when given the opportunity. And here's the other thing about Emmanuel Quickly. Kid doesn't turn the ball over. That's a skill that you're definitely going to need come postseason time. To piggyback that with what Brunson does. That's something that I don't think is being spoken enough about. Protect the basketball. Knicks will be able to score. Figure out ways to get penetrate inside. Open up the outside game against this Cleveland defense who's been top three all year. I think the Knicks can do that. I think they win the series. Going out west. The Memphis Lakers series is, is going to be real interesting. Real interesting. Because you've got all, all of this noise surrounding Ja Morant off the court. Well, how about on it? How about on the court? 
Memphis is the two seed in the West. Game one, April 16th, 3 p.m. on the East ABC game. That's a nice little Sunday action you got there. Lakers took two of three. It looks like LA is healthy at the right time, spearheaded by the availability of LeBron and Anthony Davis. Memphis is down. Brandon Clark and Steven Adams. Where's that going to hurt them specifically? Defensively. But here's the thing. Even with a healthy AD and a healthy LeBron, do the Lakers possess a player? And we, we, we had this little conversation related to the Sixers net series with stopping Joel Embiid. Do the Lakers have a player who's capable of guarding John Morant? I don't think so. And the allure of playing the Lakers is, is not going to be too much for this Memphis team. I know a lot of people want to ride that Lakers wave because they're getting healthy, and I get it. No Clark, and specifically Adams, when you've got guys, LeBron James, what does he love to do? He loves to come down that lane and punish the rim, even at 37 years old. Or dish to AD, who stuffed it down as far as his elbows can go. He's got his armpits hanging in the rim. So not having Clark and Adams there specifically is going to bang them up defensively. But if John Morant is right upstairs, there is no answer on that floor for him. Give me the Grizz in six. Denver, the top seed in the West, is going to get Minnesota, who wins the play-in game. Uh, interesting of note that I was watching that game to uh, rid themselves of Oklahoma City in really convincing fashion. Uh, again, similar to Miami, this is not really your prototypical eight seed in Minnesota, specifically with Towns. Now, this is a Denver team that's 34-7 and seven at home. Minnesota plays 500 basketball on the road. But while Embiid is a finalist for league MVP, Nikola Jokic is going for his third consecutive league MVP. 24.5 points, 11.8 rebounds a game as a big. And here's this, almost nine assists per game. Almost 10 assists per game, I should say. 9.8. Guy's almost averaging a triple-double. And if he wins the MVP, it's going to be his third straight. I just think in this series, between Joker, Jamal Murray, who's averaging 24 and 6, Michael Porter Jr., who I love, and Aaron Gordon. Porter Jr. and Gordon combined for 34 a game for this Denver team. They've been the class of the West basically from the second week of the season on. You got to go Denver here. Talented Minnesota team, play hard, play physical. I'm going Denver. They're just too... They're too tough in five. The next two series in the West are the ones I'm really going to have my eyes on. Sacramento, the three seed against the defending champs, Golden State at six. Game one, the 15th, 8.30 on ABC, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. This was a regular season series that Golden State won three out of four. Two were them by a combined eight points. So it's veterans versus the rookies, right? First postseason trip in 17 seasons for the Kings. But I really don't think it would be fair to discount the Kings. They truly believe that they should be viewed as the favorite, and I agree. I don't think the likes of young DeMontis Sabonis, De'Aaron Fox, who has been phenomenal in every single facet of basketball this season, 
I don't think they're going to be intimidated by the defending champions. I really don't. Starting with the home court advantage is huge. There's the old adage in, in, in sports, you know, specifically football, that if, if you're a, a team newer to the postseason, that you might have to have that tough luck loss to get knocked around or even knocked out before you could become a true title contender. I don't disagree with that, but I do in this instance with this series. I'm going Sacramento here, and I know I'm in the minority. Not too many people, because they play late on the West Coast, and Golden State does too, but everybody knows. Clay, Steph, they know what they have working. They watch the highlights specifically for Golden State, or they'll stay up late to watch Golden State. Not too many people are doing that with Sacramento, so they might get the disrespect or the dismissiveness there. Not this guy. Give me Sacramento in seven, possibly even six. I'll take seven. Champs are out in the first round. Phoenix, LA, the four versus the five. Man, is this going to be fun. This is going to be a slugfest. They split four during the regular season. Game one is Sunday, April 16th, 8 p.m. East uh, on TNT. It was a Phoenix team that's won 7-9 to close the regular season. Oddly enough, they dropped its season finale to the Clippers 119-114 at home. The addition of Kevin Durant here, as much of a pain in the ass as he can be, has been lights out for the Suns. Because they continue to play really well on their home floor, and that's the key here. They've got the home court advantage in this first round against the Clippers. Kawhi Leonard, if he's the Kawhi of old, he's going to be the one responsible for guarding Kevin Durant. Why? Because throughout his career, Kawhi Leonard, as much as he's been able to light up the scoreboard when needed, he is an elite defender. Assuming he's on the right side of healthy. Now, here's the thing. With Paul George out, with an injured knee that predates, I believe the injury was March 20th or 21st. He's not going to be available for the start of the series and and perhaps beyond. That hurts LA. Close, physical, tight, much. I see the battles there with Philly and and Brooklyn where I went Philly in six. I'm going to go Phoenix in six. The home court is going to matter here. I know with a lot of veterans on both sides, it shouldn't, but it will here. Because Phoenix has been knocking on the door. And and even with Chris Paul, you look at Chris Paul's stat line, I know everything is diminished this year. But now he's in the playoffs and you got a veteran like that. I take him on my team at any moment, at the snap of a finger. So that's what I have. I mean, this is going to be a hell of an opening round. Milwaukee, Miami, give me Milwaukee. Boston, Atlanta, give me the Celtics in five. Philly, Nets, it's going to be close, physical. Sixers in six. And then Cleveland, New York, give me the Knicks in seven. Out west, Denver, Minnesota. I'm going to take Denver there in five. Memphis, LA, I like the Grizz in six. Sacramento, Golden State, I like the Kings to out the champs in seven. And then Phoenix, LA, give me the Suns in six. That is your opening round of the NBA playoffs scheduled to start this weekend today, Saturday, April 15th. For those listening live, it's going to be a fun one. And of course, we will keep you up to date the entire time the postseason goes on as we root for the Knicks to win only their second postseason series in the last 24 
years. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Sports Today with Peter J. And oh, by the way, while all of that's going on in the NBA, and yes, you can subscribe on Podbean, Spotify, uh, iHeart, any, anywhere that the, the platform Sports Today with Peter J. is offered um, by literally clicking the button. It is that easy. So if you are just technologically unintelligent, it's a button click. And it says subscribe. And I appreciate it because viewership, listenership has skyrocketed. Could not have done that without you. While the NBA postseason is going on, NHL is ready to roll as well next week. Leading series in all of this is Rangers-Devils. Game one, Tuesday, April 18th. It's the seventh playoff meeting between the two. Rangers have won four of those. Last one coming, the 2021 Conference Finals. Uh, 2012 Conference Finals, I should say, Devils won that in six, with the Rangers uh, winning in 1992. Obviously, the 1994 Conference Finals. You heard the Mateau goal in Game 7 of that series. Rangers also won in 97 uh, and 2008. Now, the interesting thing for this series is the the matchups that you're going to see on the ice. The Ranger lines can cause postseason problems for anybody when they're rolling. And they've been playing pretty good hockey as of late. I did say a couple of weeks ago that I didn't think this Ranger team was as good as many thought. And they played fairly well late in the season. Kreider, Zibanejad, Tarasenko, Panarin, Trocha, Kane, Lafreniere, Hedl, Kako, Vizi, Goudreau, Mott. I mean, that's pretty damn good. So here, the thing with this series, with the Rangers and the Devils, to me, it, it it's pretty simple. Both teams can score in bunches. And one of the things that's very eye-popping to me is the team speed of the New Jersey Devils. With the uh, another strong offseason for New Jersey, but this time it came to fruition. As the two out of the Metro. Rangers the third. But if Igor Shesterkin could keep the door shut, offensively this Ranger team might be able to expose Vitek Vanasek, the Devils goalie. Immensely talented. But throughout his career, he hasn't played on a stage quite like this. And this just isn't postseason hockey, folks. This is Rangers-Devils. These two teams absolutely freaking hate one another. And the fan bases hate one another. And the Prudential Center is a hell of a place to watch a hockey game. But you get a damn bunch of Ranger fans in there as well. I mean, this is going to be boisterous, vociferous, on the ice, and in the stands. So the lack of experience on the postseason level and then a matchup of this magnitude for Vanacek could be a factor, especially if the like Kreider, Panarin, Trocek, Tarasenko, Kane. Notice I didn't mention Zibanejad. I th- he's a given. You can get those other guys rolling, Tarasenko and Kane specifically. Rangers made moves to get these guys during the season. Why? To win games of this magnitude and eventually hoist what would be the fifth Stanley Cup in franchise history. 
Now is the time, like I said with the Knicks, to see if the moves are going to pay dividends. My prediction for this series, at least, it does. Give me the Rangers in six. Around the rest of the league, you heard in the open, the opening package that I, I make every week, just how loaded the Bruins were. And they're going to go up against the second wild card team in the Florida Panthers, who have a nice squad. Florida played well down the stretch. But it's it's hard to see any way that this Florida team, who's had some jockeying on the roster, can do anything to expose what the Boston Bruins have done this season. Offense, defense, and in the net. This is a historic Boston run. What the Bruins have done, Florida might get a game. So I'll take Boston in five. The games might be close, as many in the postseason are. You get everybody's best right hook. Sweep not out of the question. I'll give the Panthers a game, Boston in five. The top wildcard team, the Islanders, go up against the Hurricanes. You want to talk where I said tight series, Nets, Sixers, Clippers, Suns, Rangers, Devils. You got one here. And I'm going to go with the Islanders. Carolina is going to be skating without a veteran presence who's played well throughout his career in the postseason. That's Max Pacioretty. That's a big deal. We talked the last couple of months and even back to a season ago where the Islanders' issues stood on the offensive side of the ice. Now, if they're able to get Matt Barzell back and correct, there's additional scoring there. Everybody knows how the Islanders played between the pipes. I, I'm going to go Islanders here. And man, is that if that turns out to be correct, is that building going to be rocking when the Islanders return? Because really from the start of the season, you had an uneasy feeling about this Islander team. Sitting sixth in the division, fifth back to sixth, got up to fourth at one point, and then back to sixth where they pretty much uh, teetered for most of the season. But they fended off Florida, Pittsburgh, for that top wildcard spot. No Pittsburgh. Right, no Crosby, and then no Washington, no Ovechkin in the postseason. How about that? And that's a, that's a credit to what the Islanders were able to do and play good enough hockey to put themselves in a position here against the number one seeded Hurricanes. I like the Islanders in this series, and I like them in six. Maple Leafs, Lightning. This will be a fun one. It's everyone wants to jump seemingly, on that Maple Leafs bandwagon and just be dismissive of what Tampa Bay has done. Kucherov, Stamkos, Point. I get it. A little older. I mean, Boston's got the same thing. with with, with But look how well those veterans have played. Crazy. Marchand. So I'm not the believer that these, these veterans on Tampa Bay can't light it up. 
Now, the, the, the running joke across the NHL was that the, the New Jersey Devils would conquer the offseason and they would flop on the ice. That didn't happen this year. The other joke was that t- uh, Toronto not able to get out of the first round. You know what? I think that continues this year. Give me Tampa Bay in seven. I, the way that that all breaks down in the East, I, I, I think you're set up, if you're a hockey fan, just to sit back, veg out, and enjoy these games. Hurricanes-Islanders, Monday, April 17th, is game one. Already told you that the Rangers and Islanders will open on the 18th. Maple Leafs-Lightning, the 18th as well. Another series, a couple other series of note out in the West. Vegas and Winnipeg. and then. Edmonton and L.A. You know, Vegas has Gerard Gallant's old team, right? The way that they've been able to go since getting to the cups a couple, the cup a couple years ago, Gallant coming over to the Rangers, getting them to the Eastern Conference Final last year, and the Golden Knights back in the playoffs again. I like them over the Jets in a physical series, and those arenas are going to be fun to watch. That's the other thing about playoff hockey. The fans, I mean, make the whole thing. As good as the entertainment on the ice is, what you're getting in the crowd sometimes is just as good. And I really, I, I think it's going to be uh, an entertaining and just action-packed uh, series of action here. I like Vegas to oust the Jets, and I like the Oilers to oust the Kings in what will be, you know, prototypical physical Western Conference hockey. Dallas and Colorado will be right up there with the, the Avalanche of defending champions. But I think moving into this second round, I would say if you're looking for entertaining hockey, I think that Vegas-Winnipeg series is going to be a fun one. I obviously think the Rangers-Devils, just for the fanfare surrounding it, will be entertaining. And I like the Islanders over Carolina, and I think that's going to be a very entertaining series as well. So I think between having a loaded NBA opening round and now a loaded NHL opening round, coupled with the MLB season underway and all the storylines surrounding the Yankees and the Mets, the start by Tampa Bay. I mean, this is all you could ask for as a sports fan, and we're really going to enjoy it. NBA playoffs open this weekend. NHL playoffs open um, next week. And I really, really think it's going to be something really, really special. Yeah, I mean, we finished the first hole, and the group in front of us was on the second tee when we walked up to the second tee, and, you know, we waited all day um, on pretty much every shot. I mean, we waited in 15 fairway, we waited in 18 fairway, so I imagine it was slow for everyone. Brooks, uh, you're a pretty fast player, as we know. Just curious your thoughts on the pace of play this afternoon. Yeah, that group in front of us was brutally slow. I mean, I don't... I mean, John went to the bathroom like seven times during the round, and we were still waiting. Yeah, obviously, everybody familiar with those audio clips by now. Going back to last week's Masters uh, in Augusta, Georgia. So you heard from Patrick Cantley and, and Brooks Kepka. The reason you piggyback that, this is today's conversation today, pace of play in golf. And I put out when I was promoting this week's show, Pace of play in golf, as it you know, as it relates now to the PGA Tour, um, even your 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 Sunday round with the, with the, with the boys and girls, whatever you want to say. Pace of play is it a serious issue? 
or because of what just took place in the final round of the Masters last weekend, is it just sort of the flavor of the month? My take on it is this. The reason I, I piggyback those interviews was for those who, who may not be in the loop. Brooks Kepka was very vocal about the pace of play last Sunday at Augusta. He was the the 54-hole leader heading into the final round, which is ironic because Liv Goff only plays 54 holes. So had it been a Liv event, he would have won. Um, and he fizzled out. He, Brooks Kepka hit a lot of bad shots. He wasn't crisp around the green. His putting wasn't great in that final round. He's a fast player. I get it. Can a, can a stalemate on the golf course mess you up, mess with your timing? Of course. But it shouldn't be messing with these guys enough that it totally removes them from the physical ability to hold on to a lead and win a golf tournament. Right? There's a hell of a lot of good talent out there playing in that final round in Augusta. Now, John Rahm went on to, to win. The guy played great golf, consistent golf. Brooks Kepka talking about the pace of play, was referring to the group in front of him, which was comprised of Patrick Cantley, who you heard from, and Victor Hovland, who shared the round one lead at Augusta following Thursday's uh, rain-soaked uh, opening round. Great player, by the way. Get a chance to watch Victor Hovland. Once he gets one major, he's going to go on a roll. This kid is really, really good. Um, I'm not a huge Brooks Kepka guy. I, his attitude bugs me. Uh, listen, he, uh, a strong showing at Augusta last week. He's a four-time major champion. The accolades speak for itself. He's not wrong in this instant. And all you needed to know about whether or not Brooks was out of line or in tune was what you saw on hole 13 via non-verbal communication. Patrick Cantley's walking up from the fairway. 13 is a dogleg banger par five. It wraps around to the left. Got to go over a little creek to get to the green. Victor Hovland goes long and two, and he's chipping back down toward the flag, chipping toward the water, which is a scary shot. The reason that's of note is Hovland hit his chip, his approach to the green, while Patrick Cantley, his playing partner in that group, was still walking up to the green. Now, Pete, why is that a big deal? Well, in golf, generally, you're going to wait to hit when your opponent is, let's say you're in the fairway near you or at his ball on the tee while your opponent is waiting for you, or on the green, whoever is further away generally will go first, unless there's a different type of agreement between playing partners, which does happen. Wasn't the case here. According to the PGA rules, policies, and guideline that govern pace of play, when you play in groups of four, you should play in four hours and 20 minutes. Four hours and three minutes if you're playing in groups of three. Patrick Cantley and Victor Hoblin were a group of two, and it took them five hours to finish. I'm sorry. I don't know how uh, – there are slow – Ben Crane has been notoriously slow. J.B. Holmes has been notoriously slow. Patrick Cantley's got this deliberate nature that obviously we, we saw was slow on Sunday. But for your playing partner to hit a ball, while you're still walking up, that's not on the playing partner. That's not on Hovland. Translation, get your ass in gear and get it going. Now, if I, I got a great uh, message on, on my Facebook regarding uh, this topic of discussion. Where a uh, guy who chimed in must agree with me as just not a huge Brooks Kepka guy. And he said, 
if the slow play by Cantley truly was the reason that Brooks Kepka collapsed, then I want to see Patrick Cantley play in front of Brooks Kepka every week. That was, a, that was a great line. That's a great line. I, Kepka's not wrong here. But the that being said, the way Kepka played and some of the shots he hit, you're not putting the entirety of the result on, on the pace of play. I'm sorry. It was a five-hour round in front of that. That cannot happen. Patrick Cantley, to say it was slow everywhere else, I get that. You played a five-hour round as a twosome. So you've got to pick it up. And Kepka, quite honestly, you've got to go just bear down and go get it. You've done it before. You could be all pissed off. John Rahm was not happy. And he came from behind to win the damn thing. So, yes, the pace of play in that instance was not good. And it is something we've seen on tour before. You've got rules officials out there. And this is directly from the rules. A player will be allowed a maximum of 40 seconds to complete his or her stroke. This is from PGA.org. An additional 10 seconds will be allowed for the first to play from the team ground on a par three, the first to play on a par four or five, or the first to play a third stroke on a par five hole. So there are rules put in place for pace of play. They're clearly not being enforced the proper way. Folks, the PGA of America, the United States Golf Association, the RNA, they all get together, the PGA officials, they want foursomes playing in four hours and 20 minutes. I have my season opening tournament tomorrow and because I play in, in, in a, a tournament group of my own. And there is a sign at all of these golf courses that we play in New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, when we travel, wherever, Texas, Florida, wherever it might be. It is recommended that foursomes play in four hours and 20 minutes. It is in your face. And there are marshals out there that keep time. And they're supposed to do this on tour. My question is how in God's name did Victor Hovland and Patrick Cantley play a five-hour round in the final round of the biggest golf tournament on the planet as a twosome? I am not a big Brooks Kepka guy. But he is not wrong. I don't think it's enough of a reason where he needed to implode because clearly it bothered Ron, but not as much. But Brooks isn't wrong. And, and the PGA has got to do a better job at cleaning this stuff up. Because they put rules in place. You could putt with the flag stick in. Why do you think that is? So you don't have to go, hey, you want it in, you want it out, you want it in, you want it out. You don't have to walk 30 feet every time you want to putt. And eh, just leave it in. I'll get it when I get up there. That's a timing thing. Yeah, it gives you a backstop, I guess, if you're putting downhill. Me, personally, I take the damn thing out. I got OCD. I got a five-footer inside. I don't want to be looking at that flag stick while I'm looking down at my ball and see it in my peripheral. It bothers me. And you get to, that's how the yips can develop. Some guys love leaving it in. If I got a long downhill putt, I might leave it in and use it and try to use it as something of a backboard. If I'm going uphill or inside six feet, that thing's out. That's just me. But those rules were put in play to speed up the pace of play. The USGA, the USGA did that specifically for the public because they wanted people moving. You get more people on the golf course, you generate more revenue. So the USGA rules that we follow, they're also following it on the PGA Tour when they play in those events. The U.S. Open is a USGA event, United States Golf Association event. But they've got to do a better job at enforcing 
whether it be USGA, PGA of America, these timing rules that they themselves wrote and put into action. Otherwise, what are we doing? It's white noise. I mean, the pace of play in baseball has dramatically dropped. Yeah, I thought initially maybe that pitch clock that the pitchers are on could be raised to something of 20 seconds, but it seems to be working. And most pitchers that get pulled, Clark Schmidt was talking about it the other night, it doesn't really take you out of your element. He goes, yeah, maybe there may be an instance where I don't get the shake off if I'm following the catcher's game, which a lot of pitchers today will do. They'll follow the predetermined game plan with their manager and catcher, and they'll just do the shake-offs instead of calling their own game. The Verlanders and the Scherzers of the world will will call their own game for the most part, the Garrett Coles. But in most instances, there's a pregame determination of what plan you're going to follow, and the pitcher can do a shake-off. With the new clocks, MLB games are down 25, 30 minutes. That's unbelievable. You can't be Augusta National, PGA Tour, with the live guys coming over to play in these majors and have a freaking twosome on the biggest stage in golf playing a five-hour round. I'm sorry, it cannot happen. You cannot have two guys who are top 10 players in the world. Cantley, I think, is fifth in the world. Fifth-ranked player in the world. That means of anyone who plays golf on this planet, he's ranked five. Playing five hours as a twosome, it's absurd. That can't happen. They've got to get it cleaned up. Otherwise, it's going to turn into a mess. And that's how, I mean, baseball had to make these rule changes, and they weren't subtle. The runner on second, I don't like. I don't know how much of an impact that's having. It sucks to lose a game like that in extra innings when you put a phantom runner out there on second base. I get it. That one might need to be revisited. But the pitch clock is working. Major League Baseball put these rules in because they were losing the youth. Kids don't want to go to a baseball game for four hours. There's a lot of downtime in baseball as it is between pitches, throwing the ball back, stepping off the mound, throwing over to first. They've eliminated the amount of times you can do that as well. It has condensed the time of the game. It is a thing of beauty. If golf doesn't get this under control, yeah, this isn't a flavor of the month issue to me, as I teased uh, in my promo. This, this is an issue. This, this is a legitimate issue. To be out there, I mean, I my daughter turned eight months yesterday. In a couple of years, I'd like to have her on the golf course. I got no shot taking her out there as a four or five year old and having and keeping her interest for five hours. It's just not going to happen. So the PGA, the RNA, the USGA, whoever else, they got to come together and figure this stuff out so this doesn't happen. Brooks Kepka is an outspoken guy. I get it. He comes off as an ass in many instances. And I, I, I am not putting the, the pace of play solely on the fact that he fell apart in that final round. John Rahm didn't, and he was in the same group. But Brooks Kepka, overall, pace of play, he's not wrong in this instance. He's just not. I just want to remind you, moving forward, new show start time is going to be Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, live on Podbean. Everything, again, still posts to all the other outlets, Google, Samsung, uh, and Spotify specifically. Um, so you can you can stay abreast with everything going on. And, of course, on my socials as well, uh, at PeterJM86. 
also tease to the fact that while we have the NFL draft coming up, and we will have plenty of coverage there uh, as that approaches, the Jets and Aaron Rodgers nonsense just continues to grow. Um, and are Green Bay seeking that first-round pick? Um, seeing that Lamar Jackson requested a trade a couple of weeks ago from Baltimore, what type of impact that may be having, the ripple effects here with the Jets and Aaron Rodgers. Um, I know, obviously, the Jets were linked to Odell Beckham. We all know that now he is uh, in Baltimore. Um, I just, again, I was of the mindset and of the belief that Aaron Rodgers is going to be a Jet. Um, and Joe Douglas was at an event a couple nights ago, and they had him up on stage. And they said, Joe, Joe, What's the deal with Aaron Rodgers? And he said, it's going to happen. And the crowd went freaking ballistic, as they would. It's Aaron Rodgers. He's one of the greatest we've ever seen as surefire Hall of Famer. But the Jets might be now in danger of creating a, a, an absolute freaking circus in East Rutherford. Because if they don't get this guy, I mean, are they going to part ways with the first-round pick? That's what Green Bay seemingly wants. Uh, it's going to be interesting. It, it really is. Uh, and, and, and I know with the NFL draft looming, uh, it's, it's a the first three picks could legitimately um, all be quarterbacks. Thursday, April 27th uh, through Saturday, April 29th is the NFL draft. It's going to be in uh, Kansas City, Missouri this year. Uh, and, you know, that'll be a fun one. 8 p.m. start, I think, for the opening pick, uh, which now belongs to the, Ca- the uh, Chicago Bears. Um, excuse me, the Carolina Panthers have the top pick in the draft after trading with uh, the Chicago Bears. So it'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds. But the Rodgers Jets nonsense just continues to be that nonsense. I mean, what more can you say? Green Bay wants a first round pick. They're either going to get it or they're not. And I, I, who will have egg on their face more? Either Green Bay, if they get rid of Rodgers and don't get the first round pick that they want and they settle, or he winds up going elsewhere and the Jets miss out. That would be a complete disaster. So uh, we'll definitely keep an eye on that moving forward. But listen, uh, Again, thank you all for tuning in. The show continues to get better and better each and every week. Uh, We're moving to a new time slot Friday nights live at 5 p.m. Eastern time on Sports Today with Peter J. All the socials stay the same. Everything stays the same. We're just going from Saturday to Friday. um, And we may sprinkle some specialty shows in as the NBA and NHL playoffs continue, especially with the MLB season now in full swing. So I will talk to you Friday. That would be April 21st at 5 p.m. Enjoy the opening round of the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs. Keep rolling with Major League Baseball. Also, it is my godson's third birthday yesterday. His third birthday party is today at 4.30. So happy third birthday to my adorable and sometimes pain in the you-know-what godson Thomas. I'll see you in a little bit, pal. For the rest of you, have a hell of a weekend, and I'll talk to you next week right here on Sports Today with Peter J. Sports Today with Peter J.